Hello, and welcome to this Solace Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solacechurch.com. Let's start here in John chapter 20. I'm reading out of the New King James Version. Listen to John 20, starting in verse 19. Here's what the scripture says. Verse 19 says, Then the same day at evening... Being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst of his disciples and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed him his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord, the resurrected Lord. 21 says, So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also Send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul now writing, and we're going to see describing his own ministry. 2 Corinthians 5, let's look at verse 14 down to chapter 6, verse 2. 2 Corinthians now, chapter 5, verse 14. Paul says, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the church, the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Chapter 6, verse 1, we then as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So this here is the word of God, to which we say, thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, thanks for the gift of your word this morning. It's our prayer of gratitude each and every morning here. Um, we, we don't want to get used to the wondrous gift that we have in you giving us your heart, you giving us your truth through your word. And Father, that's, that's why we're here, to hear from you, to know you. Um, we we want to follow what you have for our lives. And God, we, we can't follow it if we don't know it, your plan. And so, God, as, as we're here this morning um, with Bibles open, we're present here as a posture saying that we want more of you, God. We just invite you to work uh, and to speak into our lives. Um, 
I invite you, Holy Spirit, to speak to us. I have my best efforts at a sermon here, but I am uh, in need of your spirit. So I ask that you fill me, empower me, lead me, and speak to us in this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All righty. Quite a bit of reading. Well, uh, I want to start my message this morning with a two-word phrase, a phrase that when received at any given time, this phrase can alter your mood. It can uplift your spirit. It could even completely change the course of your day in a positive way. It's this, it's this two-word phrase, you're invited. You're invited. There's nothing better than the inclusive encouragement of a message saying, I want you to come be around me. You're invited. There's just something about it, you know, especially in a day and age where all day long we're being shaped and altered by all sorts of messaging. There's, again, just something about this idea that says, whether it's a wedding or a party or a small gathering, whatever it may be, the fact that you've been selected to be included, there's something significant about that. Now, a good question might be, what does that have to do with these pillars? What does that have to do with mission? Well, it has a lot to do with these pillars. It has a lot to do even with mission because it reminds me, this concept reminds me of what it's like to know God. Uh, it speaks to, you could say, the invitational nature of God. Uh, a lot of people might have in their mind this sort of intrusive view of God. That, that God is like trying to get all up in our business, trying to take away what, what we have in our lives, trying to disrupt you know, our plans. But when you see scripture, what you see in, in scripture is you see a God who instead is more invitational than he is in our minds as intrusive. He's a God that's constantly inviting us, selecting to include us in things that should blow our mind. In fact, as I thought about it, each of these different pillars that we've looked at over the past four weeks, if you think about it, each of these pillars are really just responses, different responses to different invitations that we've received from God. Think about it this way. You're invited first. Gospel centrality. Stop for a second. We've been invited into God's salvation. We've been invited into his grace. We were in our sin, separate from him, and he's given us this incredible invitation. Come be forgiven. That's good news, right? Come be cleansed. Come be redeemed. What an invitation. So when we say we want to be centered on the gospel, we're just saying we want to be all about this invitation to be identified with the grace of God. Uh, spiritual formation. Well, we, we looked in detail how Jesus gives this invitation to every person that comes to him. He says, come follow me. This is an invitation to Jesus's way, his way of life, his purpose for our transformation, authentic community. Well, this is just a response to Jesus's invitation to join his family. Hey, hey, come follow me and also join my family. Come be a part of my community as you follow me, not alone, but with a support system of other brothers and sisters. And then lastly, this morning, compassionate mission Compassionate mission, it's this invitation to be a part of God's purpose in the world. God's mission, God's purpose, God's intention and his goal for the world. God invites us into it. 
Uh, not only is God invitational, when you study scripture, you also see that God is missional. God has a purpose. God has a mission. All throughout the scriptures, you get this concept that God is sending people to accomplish certain things. I think uh, specifically of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah hears the Lord say, who's going to go for us? Who, who are we going to send? We have a mission. And Isaiah says, here am I. Send me, God. I'm available for your mission. Now, the greatest example of this missional nature of God is ultimately going to be found in the very person of Jesus, who in our first scripture reading we read, Jesus said, the Father has sent me. It's pretty cool to think about. I know a lot of us, we think about Jesus as Lord, we think about him as Savior, we think about him as King, but do we think about Jesus as missionary? Jesus is this missionary sent by this missional God for an earthly task, for an eternal purpose, a mission. This flows from the very heart of who God is. That's the most important thing about this, that when it comes to God's mission, it's not just this dutiful act like I'm doing mission. But when you see scripture, for example, God sending his son Jesus, all of uh, God's mission flows from the very core of his being. So, so John 3.16 is the greatest example of this, right? For God so loved the world that he sent his son. It's compassionate mission. This is built in the very nature of God himself. Jesus, when he was on earth, he describes, in, uh, right before this parable, he describes what that mission was. Luke 19.10, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. In theology world, this is called the Missio Dei, the mission of God, the purpose of God, that God has a purpose that overflows from the love in his heart that is embodied in the missionary presence of his son Jesus who came into this world. The, world, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus here in John 20, the passage you read, he shows up to his disciples, and he doesn't only remind them of the fact that he has come into the world to fulfill God's mission, but he has now invited them to be a part of it as well. He says, as the Father has sent me, notice this, I also send you. You see the invitation? Come be a part of my mission. God is on mission. He's sending his son Jesus as a part of that to seek and to save that which was lost. And here he has his disciples and he says, we're going to bring you along too. The sending language used all throughout the scripture. God's sending his son. And then Jesus tells the disciples, receive the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit comes upon you, it's going to be power so that I can send you into the uttermost parts of the world to be partners with me in this Mission. It's the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church. To fulfill God's mission and heart in the world. And, and, and to do so in such a way that we are reflecting who God is. I want you to think about this. Who is God? Well, God is Father, Son, and Spirit. I love that we sang about that. Praise the Father. Praise the Son. Praise the Spirit. Three in one. God is a community on mission. And he says, church, I want you to be like me. I want you, like the very nature of who God is, as I've brought you unto myself, I'm going to fill you with my spirit. And as Jesus says, the Father sent me, I also send you, and the church exists as a reflection of God himself, a community on mission. You see, uh, it's been really well said, and I, I think it's encouraging to me as a pastor leading a church 
you know, even in this series, what we're trying to discover is, like, God, what do you have for our church? Like, what's your mission? What's your vision? And, and there, there needs to be, like, a prayer where we, where we ask God for, like, some real, you know, um, like, real living at this point in time, some real fresh vision. But there's a danger sometimes in trying to discover that creatively where, like, you can forget, we can forget that God's mission hasn't changed, right? Like, really what we're saying when we, as a church when we're like, here's our mission statement. We're just trying to become more accurate to what the Bible says we're supposed to be about. You know what I mean? Like, if, if any church is like, we have a brand new mission statement, you haven't heard of it in, like, the centuries of the church, I'd be like, mm, that's concerning. Okay. A brand, like, isn't there nothing new under the sun? Like, isn't God's word endure forever? Like, okay, hold on. Right? Now, generally speaking... What I'm trying to get at is that um, our church, really, our mission is, is a response to God's mission. That's what I'm trying to get at. Uh, it's been well said. I love this quote. God's church doesn't have a mission. God's mission has a church. I love that. It's not like we go around going, okay, God, what are we supposed to do? He goes, no, no, no. I have something to do, and that's why you're here. You're, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you to seek and to save, again, that which was lost. I love this quote by Henry Blackaby. Also love saying his name as well. Uh, he says this. He says, the great task of every generation is to find out what God is doing and join him. By the way, this is great, like just practical advice for those of you that are trying to figure out like God's plan for your life or like you're trying to find your purpose. Maybe is another way to say that. God, what's your, what's, what's my purpose in life? A great question to go is, God, what are you up to? It's kind of like me when I'm working in the backyard or something and Judah comes along. He's like, Dad, can I, what are you doing? Can I, can I help? Can I be a part of it? And, and that's the same idea as a child of God. We say, God, what are you up to? Like if we want our lives to matter for more than just the time we have here on earth, if we want to live in such a way that there's a legacy and there's an eternal effect to our lives, we say, God, what are you doing? All that's here will soon be past. It's only what's done for Christ that will last. So, God, what are you up to? And, and how can I join in on that? That's the task of every generation. God, what are you up to? What are you doing? Uh, so here would be my definition, then, of, of our church's pillar here of compassionate mission. In light of kind of this background, understanding that God is invitational. He invites us to join him in his mission. Because he's missional. He has a purpose that he sent his son Jesus, and he sends the church to fulfill of seeking and saving the lost. Uh, for, for me, I would simplify this whole concept into this idea. Compassionate mission, if you're taking notes, trying to figure out what exactly do we mean by this. Compassionate mission for soulless church is about joining our purpose with God's heart for the world and invitation for our lives. Rather than asking God, what's, what's my purpose? It's God, what's your purpose? And not saying, God, here's all my plans. Can you come and bless them? But God, what are you doing of eternal and significant value, and how can I leverage everything in my life for that? It's joining our purpose with God's heart. It's his heart. Uh, the way we said it in the beginning was the, the heart of Jesus at the center of my purpose. Now, as I started to think and pray about this and really um, seek the Lord on a, on a good text to encompass this, I think the biggest concept that I was searching for and praying through is, 
it's so much more than just like practical mission. I think there's a lot today in the church in, in regards to, and I'm thankful for it, uh, whether it's the Alpha Evangelism Program or uh, back in the day, do you guys remember Evangelism Explosion? Anybody remember that back in the day? A couple, couple head nods. Anybody younger than 30 is like, what's Evangelism Explosion? It sounds cool. All right. Um, I, make my, I sound like so old when I say that, but I'm 32. Like, what a loser. Um, but... Um, you know, there's been a lot of great, I think, headway done in the church in going, how can we be effective in doing the mission, in reaching our neighbors, in reaching our world, in, 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 in bringing the lost to Christ? But what I've noticed is that there's been almost a lack of teaching and discipleship regarding the internal motivators for why we would be about that. In other words, like, if you are sharing the gospel regularly, if you are living your life in response to this sentness, you're like, I'm a sent missionary for Jesus, just like Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. I go into work every day like a missionary. It's my mission field. Now, if that's true of your life, there are some internal things that are compelling that. There are some deep-rooted causes for that kind of a life. In fact, if you study any great missionary of history, what's most captivating to me about great leaders, about great missionaries, is not just what they've done, but the hearts that they have. You ever notice that? Like, like read about Hudson Taylor. Read about Leslie Newbegin. Read about these different missionaries that, that what they were doing was just this overflow of these deep senses within their heart that caused them to live in such a way. Um, I, I faced this a lot, like when I came in to do discipleship with high school and middle school kids that were like raised in the church. And I remember there was this, we had this whole curriculum about like telling them like to share the gospel, like share it, do it. The kids like, oh, okay, I'll do it. Like, what do I do? Like, just say it. Like, what do I say? Okay. Like, and it can be like, a lot of times it's like, we got to get you to do Christian things, right? When you, so like, and then what problems with that is it, it kind of just becomes like this project thing. Like you don't actually love people. But you're like, I, I'm get, um, where are you going when you die? All right. Where are you going? All right. And it, it can become like, people can kind of feel like I'm just like a case study for you. I'm just, you know what I'm saying by that? And like, I've learned that in youth, man. When, when we had, I remember as a youth pastor, we had this like, uh, this little mini revival in our youth group. It was really cool. Um, it was like this little fire that was spreading amongst uh, some of our youth. And it started with a couple kids whose hearts just got completely changed by Jesus. And it became so much more than like, here's the behaviors that make you acceptable here in this community. It was like, well, what is God looking at the heart? And, let, let's, let's, and that's what happened. People's hearts started being transformed, and all of a sudden, external things started to result. So I want to speak to that. I want to speak to some things in the heart today that, that I think really is what embodies compassionate mission, not just active mission, doing things. Um, some root causes of why there may be activity or inactivity in this area. And I think the greatest example of that is, is, is found here in the passage we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So make sure you go there now. That's where we're going to be camping out, 2 Corinthians 5. You know, Jesus is obviously the ultimate compassionate missionary. But um, I shouldn't say a close second because you can't ever say that about Jesus. <laughs> a close second to Jesus. It's like, watch it, all right? Um, but second place, a far second, but second place would be the Apostle Paul. I can't think of a, a, a more exemplary, compassionate missionary in Scripture. And here in 2 Corinthians 5, the second passage that we read, we have this really incredible gift. We have this like insight into Paul's ministry. 
We have the things that made him move in life, the things that, that caused his heart to beat, and, and the things that caused him to live a life that was marked by mission. When I say marked by mission, I don't just mean look at all the different places that Paul went to bring the gospel. He certainly did that. Okay, Kanye West named one of his albums Life of Pablo after Pablo Escobar, uh, Pablo Picasso, and the Apostle Paul. Great trio there. It's the Kanye West trinity, I guess. But one of the reasons why he wanted to name it after the Apostle Paul, Kanye West, is because the, the, the way in which Paul lived his life to be a pioneer for the faith was inspiring to our guy Kanye. Uh, and, so, and so there's something about the Apostle Paul's life, and that's certainly a big mark of, of his, his like missional dedication. Like he embodies that Isaiah spirit that says, Lord, here am I. Here's every part of me. Here's every minute in my day. Here's every week in my year. Here's, here's everything. Here am I. Send me. Paul embodies that. But I think what most clearly exemplifies that in Paul's life is the fact that he was willing to even give his own life. How dedicated was Paul to the mission of Christ? How central was the Missio Dei? Paul gave his own life for the mission. And so it's that guy that uh, we actually get some insight into here in 2 Corinthians 5. We have these, these sort of deep things that compelled his mission, and I think they'd be helpful to us as those, I know me, I know God has called me as a church planner, as a pastor, and as a, just simply as a follower of Jesus. In one of the hardest times in American history to be a follower of Jesus, it's a hard, not just follow Jesus, let's talk about influencing culture to follow Jesus, like, as I weigh through that and I think about how to do that, I think some of these things here in 2 Corinthians 5 can really help us as we get to some of the root issue of God's plan and purpose for us being on mission. There's four things. Let's look at the first one. I want to point out these four things that compelled Paul. The first thing that we see in this text that compels compassionate mission is this deep sense of care and concern. Which is such a great place to start, right? Because it's like, well, you got to care. Step one, you got to care, right? But this is so true about Paul. This is the first thing that we see here in the text that compelled Paul's mission. He was compelled by this deep sense of care and concern, listen, for the lost. Care and concern for the lost. He says it this way in verse 14. He says, for the love of of Christ compels us. I love that. Paul's saying it's not duty and obligation. All right, I, I, I'm not going to go now into my week because Andrew preached a message on mission and like I'm a good Christian and like Christians evangelize, so I'm going to be really scared. And I'm going to try to say no. That's not no no no. Paul says the thing that compels me is not this obligatory list of rules I got to follow. Paul says it's the love. Isn't this great? The love of Christ. Paul says compels me. Now, this is important, the thing that compelled Paul. Um, it, he, doesn't say the, he doesn't say it's love for Christ that compels him. Now, that's a, that's a great reason to do anything good, right? Love for Christ. But he says here, it's, it's not just me doing something because I love God. He's saying it's the very love of Christ that compels me. You know, in Scripture, the love of Christ is not just some kind of like uh, um, you know, theoretical, conceptual thing. Like, oh, here's the love of Christ. 
In fact, in Scripture, what you see about the love of Christ, the love of God, is that it's a substantial thing. Look at Romans 5.5. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God, same as the love of Christ, has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. By the way, this is what worship is. We know that, right? Just communing with the greatness and the goodness of God and saying, God, would you pour out your love in my heart by your Spirit? God, may we not be those that can just theorize about your love. May we be those that have been so impacted by your love that it's it's as if you've poured it out upon us. It's substantial. Paul says the love of God, this is, by the way, where Christianity becomes worth living. When the love of God moves from a concept in your head to the substance that's in your heart that defines your life and it fuels everything about you. The love of Christ. Now, uh, in in this passage, Paul is speaking, and he goes on to describe what this love is like. Uh, And he says this about this love. He says that God demonstrates this love, this substantial love, toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul says this is the nature of that love. That, That when God saw me as his enemy, he loved me. He had compassion for me. He saved me not when I cleaned my act up, but when I was in the exact opposite direction, making a mess of my life, cursing God. This is the story of Paul. It wasn't just that Paul wasn't doing the right things. He was like doing the exact opposite right things. And that is where God's love showed up, right in that mess. And Paul says it's this love that God has for even his enemies, for sinners. This love, Paul says, compels me. He says in the passage this idea that Christ died for all. For all. That's the good news of the gospel. For God so loved the world that whosoever, he gave his son, that whosoever believes in him. There's not like this checklist of you got to become this person, do this thing, jump through this hoop, and then God's love will reach you. No, God's love always comes to the undeserving. It's never this deserved thing. It's love, when he he tells Israel this in Deuteronomy, it's love that exists because it's who God is. God says to Israel in Deuteronomy, I I don't love you because anything awesome about you. He says, I love you because I love you. Why do you love me? Because I love you. It's like, I feel like that's what I would tell my kids. I can't really explain. It's too great for me to just break it down to a sentence, right? And Paul's saying, I have become a, a, a recipient of this incredible love, and that's the very thing, listen, that propels my love for others. That propels my evangelism. The love of Christ, it doesn't just lead me to sit as I am as an object of his love, but it causes me to be a vessel of that love to others. Notice what he says about this same concept. He's talking about how Christ has died for all, all people, everyone, every kind of person, even the people that like we would put outside the camp, but not them, right? Like them. Even them. He's died for all. Verse 16 is so important. Did you see it? He says, therefore, in light of this fact of God's love, he says, from now on, notice this, we regard no one according to the flesh. It's so interesting. Paul's like, when God saw me, he didn't just see me for the things of the flesh. He saw those things. He saw my sinful life. He saw how broken I was, but he saw beyond that. And so Paul says that love has caused me to see others the same way. Um, The idea here, again, is this deep sense of care and concern, which comes through a heart that has been so impacted by God's love that 
I don't see people merely for our differences, but I see them as a potential object of God's love. And I think this is so important, especially in this politically tense moment that we've been in, especially in this divisive moment as a nation. The question I would ask you this morning is, who's your enemy? Not like name them, but describe them, you know? Because you go, I don't have any enemies. You do. Who's the exact opposite of you, right? Who represents everything that's... Here's a great way to ask this question, ready? Who represents everything that's wrong with our country in your mind? Hello to your enemy, okay? And Paul says, we regard no one according to the flesh. I don't just see them for where they're at in the flesh. I don't just see them according to their sinfulness. I don't just see them according to their political issues or whatever it may be or differences. Paul is saying, I regard people the same way God regarded me. He had eyes to see beyond my brokenness. Really, he had eyes to see into it. Like, I found this as one of the most helpful ways to be compassionate towards people that could be my enemy. This is just a great life tool, okay? Next time someone is uh, hurtful towards you or sinful towards you, just try employing this tactic. Try seeing them as broken. Like, not just an enemy of an ideology, but like, you, you see there's brokenness between their relationship with God. It's amazing. All of a sudden, your heart goes from frustration. This has happened to me. I go from being angry to compassionate, right? Like, oh, I know why you're doing that. Oh, you don't know Jesus. Oh, you're far from Jesus. Like, just that perspective. Now, the reason why I'm getting at this is because this is how Jesus sees people. Uh, this is Matthew chapter 9. It gives us great insight to Jesus. He says, it says this, that Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. It says, but when he saw the multitudes, it says he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. So Jesus saw beyond their, their, the flesh. He saw beyond the physical. He didn't, you know, he didn't join into the political tension and just make everyone who wasn't like him his enemy. He, he said, listen, these, these are people that need Jesus. These are people that are sheep without a shepherd. Something will happen in the heart of the American church when we start to adopt this same heart posture towards the loss that Jesus has. When we start to see them. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't call out their sin. It doesn't mean that's the, that we muddy down the message of the gospel. But it does mean that we start to see them through the lens of Christ's eyes. Broken, lost, in need of a Savior. Seeing people rightly, it's so important. Seeing them, listen, not just the way that your natural eye sees them, but saying, God, help me see them the way that you see them. And it's usually some version of this. Broken, without a shepherd, Lost And Jesus here, he has compassion on them. We, we talked about a great example of this uh, with the book of Jonah. You guys remember studying the book of Jonah in our Minor Prophets series? Jonah is this great example of, a, of, of one of God's people who God sends as a missionary uh, to Jonah's enemies. And, 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 and Jonah says, God, thanks, but no thanks. Thanks for the mission, but I got some other things to do. I'm going to head over to Joppa. All right? Nineveh, maybe I'll stop by, probably not, okay? The Ninevites, they represented the, the, the national enemy, and that's who God sends Jonah to. And Jonah's like, no, like, he saw them as different than him, right? He saw himself as, like, worth, worthy and, and, and worth God's love, but them, well, they're really an enemy of God, you know? 
I'm kind of an enemy of God. They're really an enemy of God. I've kind of sinned against God, but like they have like front door, back door, every door sinned against God, okay? Sinners. What's the message of Jonah? The message of Jonah is that God loves our enemies. <laughs> and he calls us to do the same, doesn't Jesus? It's, it starts here, man. It starts with seeing people the way that God sees them. Paul says, I don't regard people according to the flesh. It's the love of Christ that compels me. That same love that met me while I was God's enemy. I want to be a vessel of that love towards others, even my own enemy. And to see them the way God sees them. Uh, we see this was so close to the heart uh, of Paul. Um, I, I love this scripture, Romans 9. Here's what Paul says about his heart. He says, I tell the truth in Christ. He goes, I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness with me in the Holy Spirit. Here's what Paul says. He says that I have continual sorrow and grief in my heart. Great sorrow and continual grief. For I could wish, notice this, that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. This is Paul's heart for the lost. Like, there ought to be some deep pain that we feel about the lost. Sometimes mission is dressed up to be such a happy thing, and it can be because of the hope that's there. But, I, man, I don't know if we can rejoice over someone's salvation if we haven't first grieved their brokenness. And I got some people in my life that I could just spend some time grieving over and just going, Lord, please reach them. Do you have anyone like that? Where you just you care and you're concerned. That's such a great starting spot. That will compel you to do what Paul did. Paul says this in Romans 10.1, he says, My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. I'm just praying that you reach them. So it starts here. Paul's mission, his compassionate mission, was first compelled by a deep sense of care and concern. Write this next one down. We see Paul's mission was also compelled by a deep sense, this is huge, of calling and conviction. Compassionate mission. First, I care. I don't just see people as my enemy. I see them as those that, that God loves and wants to save, just as he saw me. But then I've got to look also at my own life and see myself with some conviction and calling. Paul's talking about this idea. Notice what he says there in verse 18. Here's Paul's convictions. He says, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. That's, that's the first conviction. So uh, the first conviction here with being a, a missionary for the gospel is being, uh, uh, being convicted and being truly convinced of the salvation of Jesus in your own life. He says, first and foremost, God has, what a great truth, God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus. Like, unless you've come to the point of actually believing that about your life personally, the gospel won't ever come out of you, will it? Because what is the gospel? The good news of Jesus. It's good news, right? It's like, I gotta tell you good news. Like, when there's good news in your life, you share it with your closest friends. You don't hide it. In fact, sometimes we do. Like, you ever had like that one friend that like doesn't tell anybody the stuff? You're like, why didn't you tell us that? Like, what? Like, you won the lotto? Come on. You know, like, but that genuinely, when, when something is good news to us, it's good news through us. It's so hard. Like, I, I think back to my wife and I, whether it's getting pregnant or, or whatever the, the thing may be, and having to hold that back. You know what Jeremiah says about the word of God? Jeremiah says similarly, he's like, God's word is like a fire in my bones. I'm weary from holding it back. Like that's someone that has been so convicted and convinced of the truth of God's word that it, it just, it can't help but come out of them. 
And so Paul's first conviction, he says, I have been, what good news, reconciled to God through Jesus. Let's not rush through that and just sit in that for a second. Your and my sins that we have willfully, intentionally, and unintentionally committed have separated us from God. But God sent his son Jesus, notice this good news, to bring us back to God, to reconcile us to God. The word reconcile means to bring back or to restore a broken relationship. If you've reconciled with a friend, you've, you've made amends and things are good. Now, when it comes to our relationship with God, God hasn't harmed us, right? It's not like he's done something wrong and we have to forgive him. No, we've sinned against him. And despite us sinning against him, he's the one that pursues us. And he sends his son Jesus, and Paul says it there in verse 21 of this same chapter, and, and God makes a way for us to come back to God, um, not by giving us this checklist that we have to follow to be forgiven, like we can do that with people. I'll forgive you if. But Jesus, he takes upon himself our faults on the cross. He becomes sin for us so that we can become the righteousness of God in him as a free gift. And I love it what it says there, not imputing our trespasses to us. Like some of you guys are holding yourselves to sins that God isn't. And you're just constantly imputing your own trespass. But you're in Christ. And the Bible says this, the gospel says the good news that Jesus, he took those sins. Your sins were put into his account so that his righteousness can be put on your account. So that you can be cleansed in him. You've been reconciled to God through Jesus. And Paul says this is the first conviction. But, but notice the next thing that he says. This is so important. He says, not only has God reconciled us to himself, but the word and there is so important. He says, and he has given us, us who have been reconciled to God, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So not only has God saved us, but he sent us. This is amazing. We come to God, we're reconciled to him, and check this fact out, and then God calls us into ministry. Who? Us. Wait, ministry? Isn't that like, Andrew, what you're doing right now? Like you're the minister, right? Doing the ministry? Like, I got to work at a church now or something like that? Like, ministry. No, here, every believer who's been reconciled to God, they've been given the service, the ministry. He calls it the ministry of reconciliation. The idea there is we've been brought back to God, and we've been given, each one of us who have been saved by God, God always sends out that which he saves, and he saves us and sends us out with a task, with a service, to bring others to God. To, to the, the ministry of reconciliation, to, to lead others to know, Je to know God through the sacrifice of his son Jesus. And notice it says this, he's given us a ministry, but the end of verse uh, 19 says he's committed to us a message. I love that. Uh, the ministry is ultimately a message. Uh, our ministry to the world is not just to get people to come to church. Our ministry to the world is not merely to get them to vote a certain way or to behave in a certain way. Uh, the Bible says that our ministry to the world is to proclaim a message of salvation that comes by faith through grace all in the person of Jesus. That's our ministry. It's in a message. It's important to embody that message, right? Thank you, St. Francis of Assisi. You're right. 
my guy, St. Francis, right? There's a sense in which preach the gospel, if necessary, use words at all times. It's like, well, um, I just want you to know there's not going to be one person that is saved and regenerated because of simply your example. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so there, there needs to be that authentic embodiment, but there must be the proclamation of the gospel. We've got to be so convinced of the fact that it's good news that Jesus reconciles sinner back to him that we actually start proclaiming that truth. Now, I, I love a simple version of this. Um, um, and, and what I'm trying to get at here is, is really like you coming to the place where you evaluate your identity as a Christian. I want you to think about that idea of ministry, and I want you to think about this next word, right? So, you know, if, if we relegate ministry to certain groups of people, how much more do we do that with missions? Don't we do that too? Oh, missionaries, those people that leave the country and learn a new language. I just got to see one of my closest friends. He's kind of a little brother, almost a son if I was a little older. But Tim Mallory, he's a missionary over in uh, Columbia. He listens to the podcast every week. Hi, Timmy. How are you? Love you. Um, and he, he, um, he's been over in Colombia for about seven years, has learned the language. It's, he's the most Spanish-speaking gringo you've ever seen. It's magical. He even is starting to speak English with a Spanish accent. It's like, what's going on? Jono no say. Sorry. Um, but, you know, Tim's, he's a missionary. And I think of uh, countless other friends that I have that have in some way, they've gone in an apostolic way. They've been sent to go into a foreign land. There is some danger with that word because what we often do is we assume that God is only working over there. God is only sending when people leave. But we just read John 20. Jesus said, as the Father sent me, I send you. So, so you've got to identify first and foremost as a missionary. This is important, like, because how you identify determines, you know, how you live. So, like, I was at the skate park last week with Judah. It's our Tuesday night thing, I pick, our Tuesday afternoon thing. I pick him up from school, got the skateboards in the car. We go down to Ramp 48, and you could pray for me while I'm there. Um, I'll tell you what, how that goes is directly dependent upon how I see myself. When I, see, when I forget to see myself as 32 years old, not as nimble as I once was. Bad things happen. Last Tuesday, bad things happen. I was limping a little bit. But what I, you know, there's something about like I start to see myself as like a 17-year-old. And I start jumping off things that are higher than my head. And I shouldn't do that. Okay? Brittany's like, no, you shouldn't do that. I don't think she's going to let me go anymore. Um, but how I self-identify, just going, okay, that's important. That determines my activity. It fuels my activity. And I wonder if Today, the amount of inactivity in regards to mission, I wonder how much of it's connected to us not identifying as those missionaries that God sees us as. It's who you are. It's who you are. Um, let me give you kind of this in, in a simple way. I, I love Mark chapter 5. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus, he transforms someone's life, completely saves this demon-possessed man who is out of his mind. And Jesus delivers him, uh, delivers, um, removes these unclean spirits from him, and he's in his right mind now. He's been transformed by Jesus. And so I love this, this like simple 
um, the, the simple roadmap for mission. Here's what, here's what it says about the demon-possessed man. It says, when Jesus got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. Now, this seems like a little mean from Jesus, but I want you to see that it's not, okay? So Jesus didn't permit him, but said to him, go home. <laughs> I love that. He's like, can I come with you? He's like, go home. But notice, it's not just, hey, you can't come. It's, no, no, I have a purpose for you. I've saved you for a reason. Go home to your friends. Here's mission. And tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. There's mission. Okay, I'm a Christian now. I'm a missionary. Where, where, where do I got to book my ticket to? Like, what language? Now, maybe God calls you to go to some foreign land. I mean, we, we need more of that. We're praying for that even as a, in our presence as our church. But mission's got to start in Jerusalem before it goes to the ends of the earth. It's got to start by you identifying a few key things. Um, what places has God sent you to? What people has God sent you to? And what positions has God sent you to? These are usually the three things that we see people sent into in the book of Acts. You have some people that are straight up sent to places. And, and I would have you think about, like, what are the places the spheres that, you have, uh, that you're living in? And what would it look like to see those places as mission fields? So like some categories of this could be like where you live, your neighborhood. It's a place that you as a missionary have been sent to. Um, there's not going to be a foreign missionary that comes from another country to reach your neighbors that we care about and love. So what places, what people? Who has God filled your life with? What family, what friends, what coworkers? So places, and you can think about that, where you live, where you work, your recreation, where you shop, where you eat. You guys got to stop going to Las Vajitas. Can I just tell you, like every time I go, there's like 12 of you there, okay? I need to get a table. Stop. All right. But, but Brittany and I, we go there every week. That's become a mission field for us. There's consistency there. So, so there's places, there's people, there's positions. What platforms has God given you? Maybe as a parent, in your work? What kind of influence has God given you? And how are you leveraging that for the kingdom? Last, uh, the third one, write this down, a deep sense of culture and context. What compels mission? Uh, what compels mission? A deep sense of care and concern. I've got to care about the lost. I've got to see them the way God sees them. What compels mission? Compassionate mission. There's got to be a deep sense of, of calling and conviction or I'm not waiting for someone else to show up to, to lead my neighbor to Christ. But I see that I've been given this ministry of reconciliation with a message. And I'm God's missionary to them. Whatever places, people, or positions I have in my life. And then thirdly, a deep sense of culture and context. Uh, Paul's a great example of this. Paul, especially in the book of Acts, everywhere he went, he was sensitive to the language, the customs, and the traditions of a culture. Uh, he was thoughtful. There was enough compassion in his mission to do what's called contextualize the message. Now, contextualization is basically just trying to understand uh, what sort of language do people speak here? Uh, how, how is the gospel, uh, come, how does it come to bear on this group of people? Uh, doing youth ministry, I mean, I, I've noticed this. The, the message of the gospel is the message of the gospel. It's the same message for every generation, tribe, nation, and tongue. But I've noticed that the way that it's communicated, right, the way that it's packaged, you could say, is going to be contingent upon the culture that you're seeking to reach. I, I think of like Heinz ketchup, you know, naturally. <laughs> 
Heinz ketchup, evangelism, duh. Um, think about Heinz ketchup. How, how it's been the same substance, as far as we know, probably more high fructose corn syrup, but the same substance, but it's come in different forms. I remember as a kid, remember the glass bottles? You'd hit the, what was it, 50-something? You'd hit that thing, and you'd break your wrist to get some ketchup for your French fries. <laughs> like, ow! Oh, good, French fries. Like, that, it was such hard work to get some ketchup on your French fries. Or today, now they got the squeeze bottle. It's the same substance, different packaging based on the culture. Where do we see this in the text? Look at verse 20. Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. This is cool. So, so the, the nature of the ministry is when I'm leading someone to Christ, this is, think about this beautiful concept. A lot of times we think about what can I do for God? God's like, that's not what evangelism is. Evangelism is whether you feel it or not, my spirit is in you and I am pleading through you to that person. That changes everything. This isn't like God, like God, he's not like leaving me here to do this as though God is pleading through you and you're calling people to come know him, a vessel of his invitation he says we're ambassadors as we do that. Now, we know what an ambassador is, right? An ambassador represents one nation to another. It represents one kingdom to another, and that's who we are as Christians. We're ambassadors. We're representatives of the kingdom of God, but we're representatives in a different culture. And everywhere that Paul went, it was like he was keen on trying to do his best uh, to, to make sure that the gospel was understood. I, I love this verse in 1 Corinthians 9. It says it best. He says, for though I am free from all men, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. He says, and to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. And to those who are without law as without the law, not being without the law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without Law. Now here's the kicker, verse 22, to the weak I became weak, that I may win the weak. I've become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. So Paul's like, when I come into a town, I don't just come in with my gospel that I brought from the last town. I'm thoughtful enough to understand the culture. I want to think about how does the gospel come to bear on you? I've heard an illustration of this is like when we fail to do this, it's like, it's like think about going to a foreign country and then preaching the gospel in English. And people who don't speak English looking on at you like, words, he's saying noises, he's making noises. Jesus, I heard the word Jesus, okay. And then they say, it's not connecting. And so what you do is you start saying it louder. You just start shouting at them in the language they don't understand. I've been guilty of this, okay? Um, but, but think about that. How is that? That's not being the most thoughtful way to bring Jesus to that person is to learn their language. It's to bring it into their world. Um, man, I, I just want to say that if, um, you know, contextualization is, is doing this, by the way. It's not optional. Like, it's, we're doing it right now. Tim Keller says the second that you have a style of music and speak in a language, you've contextualized the question is, are we doing it thoughtfully and intentionally? Are we looking on? I think our culture is a great example of this. Um, uh, we live in a time where we really need to do our best to go, how does the gospel of Jesus come to bear on our culture? There's a song I heard recently at a coffee shop that I think embodies where our culture is at. Check this out. It's by a band called Portugal the Man. I actually like this band. Um, this lyric, not so much. Okay, This is the chorus of their popular song. Don't pray for us. This is our culture. We don't need no modern Jesus. To roll with us. It's 
really trendy too. That's the problem. It's like, I don't like, oh wait, okay. The only, <laughs> notice this, the only rule we need is never giving up. Now, I'm in the coffee shop, I'm studying, and I hear that. Look up the lyrics. Now, just in this song, this is, a, by the way, I think this is like, this, this, this course right here, we have a little lens into, into our culture that we're trying to reach. Let me point out a few things in this song. Just this song. And you could do it with every TV show on TV. You could do it with your neighbor. But you, you have just some cues. First of all, you have this post-Christian culture. Modern Jesus. Hello. Minimize. What's up? Okay. Modern Jesus. So it's post-Christian. This is what's hard when you look at the Bible. Like every context that Paul comes to, it's pre-Jesus, right? He's br- we live in a culture that's been brought Jesus. So how do we bring Jesus to a culture that thinks they've already heard the gospel? It's post-Christian. We don't need no modern Jesus. We've heard of him. Uh, notice this. It's also a bit disenfranchised, isn't it? it it's, it's, look at the idea of the only rule we need. In other, in other words, it's a culture that looks on at the church as a group of people with a bunch of rules. Doesn't our culture think that way? We're just, we got, what do we got for you? Rules. It's, 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 it's great. Come on, get on in here, get some rules in your life. You have this secular humanist worldview. This idea that says the only faith we have is faith in us. We don't need no deity, we don't need no God, we don't need no no mystical age-old book. Secular humanism, we just need more faith in ourselves. And there's also this component of skepticism, faith, faith. I mean, just looking at this song... You can see all the challenges that we're facing. Can I give you, um, real quick, just the three practical things that I think are key to reaching our generation? I think as missionaries, we got to become intelligent. You go, uh-oh. No, don't, don't think too hard about that. Intelligent, what I mean by that is our gospel, it must be able to captivate the mind as much as it's able to cut to the heart. As it's been well said, what I believe in my heart should make sense in my mind. We're called to love God with our minds. All right, get on some Tim Keller. I'd recommend that. Some Tim Keller every day on the podcast. Read his books. A little bit more intelligent in the Christianity. His book, The Reason for God, is a great step for that. Um, And the idea here is pre-evangelism, right? People have questions. And and before we, we tell them about a God who loves them, they're going, well, is there a God? You know what I'm saying? And we say, well, his word says, what word? Why is that holy book any better than that holy book? I think... Um, the next generation of evangelism needs to be intelligent. It needs to be discerning. It's got to discern what's going on, what kind of idol is in this life, and how does the gospel come to bear on that. And it's, it has to be authentic. Like even my kids, last night I was throwing the football with Judah. He was telling me a story, and it, was like, it, was, it wasn't like funny. <laughs> he thought it was, but like, no offense to him. Like, I'm, not, I'm a good dad. He's like, but it wasn't like, Ha, 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 funny. It just made my heart warm, and I love him. And I was like, ha, ha, And he goes, Dad, that was a fake laugh. He's like, Dad, that was your fake laugh. I was like, how do you know that? Discernment, all right? And so if, if my seven-year-old can point that out, I think the world can point out when a Christian isn't authentic. So, so important. Um, so th- this is, listen, I just want you to think about this. Write this last one down, and I'll invite the band to come up. We're going to transition to our, our close here. Um, The last thing is a deep sense of courage and confidence. So we have in our hearts this deep sense that God's love is wide enough even for my enemies. It was wide enough to include me. So that's going to compel me to start to see people 
not just according to the flesh, but the way that God sees them. I'm going to be compelled by also this deep sense of calling and conviction where I look at my own life and I start to identify as someone who's been sent. I start to look at the people, the places, and the positions I've been given as mission fields that God has sent me into. And as I go into those mission fields, I'm thoughtful enough in my compassion to study culture and context, to think about how does the gospel come to bear. But lastly, it's going to involve this deep sense of courage and confidence. Talking about being a dad, such a key part of being a dad is helping instill my son's courage and confidence. And this is what we need in this moment. This is what the church is in need of. Just this fresh wind that convinces us over the power and the truth of the gospel. Remember, that's where, as followers of Jesus, that's where we look for courage. That's where we look for confidence. We don't look within. We look to God. We see him as the Savior. We see him as the one who is mighty enough to even save us. We we see in Jesus, we see the fact that God wasn't ashamed to call me his own. And so Paul says, therefore, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. How can I ever be ashamed of a God who's not ashamed of me? Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.